Hi, everyone. It's Greg Campion here. Thank you for joining us for the second installment of a three-part series on Bearing's 2022 Outlook. This year, we are calling our outlook The New Normal Comes Into View. As our investment teams believe, we are seeing signs of what a post-pandemic new normal will look like. As part of this, we are hosting discussions on the outlook for the macro economy, which is the discussion that follows here, as well as a discussion on the credit market outlook for 2022, and also a discussion on investing through climate risk. You'll be able to find all of these on our Streaming Income podcast channel as they're published, and you'll be able to find more details, including written versions of these discussions on bearings.com in the weeks to come. Finally, if you're not already subscribing to Streaming Income, we'd love for you to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We host regular discussions on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets. So with that, please enjoy the following conversation moderated by my colleague, Dr. Christopher Smart. Hello and welcome. My name is Christopher Smart, head of the Bearings Investment Institute. Today, we're going to explore the outlook for 2022, both in terms of the global economy, as well as what that may mean for financial markets and investment opportunities. We are seeing a recovery clearly coming into view. There is strong demand as the pandemic seems more contained in developed markets. And inflation, we believe, will begin to start easing next year, even though the recent data has been more troubling for that, for that view. And we'll be watching some of those pressures more closely. We'll be talking about that with our panel today. What's next? We'll be asking them, what are the risks and what are the opportunities? And we're going to tackle these questions both from the top down as well as from the bottom up. One of the great joys of my particular role at Bearings is that I get to talk to all of our colleagues on a regular basis, and we have perspectives that span global views, global investment strategies, looking across geographies, across asset classes, across sectors and industries, of course. But we also have incredible experts who focus from the bottom up on particular companies, on particular industries, on trends, technological social and otherwise that are affecting investment opportunities from from their point of view. And so the idea today is to bring them all together into a conversation to give uh, to give you a better sense of what we are expecting from 2022. For a global view, uh, we're joined by my friends Ricardo Adroge, who is the head of sovereign debt and currencies here based here in Boston. Uh, and James Lung, head of multi-asset Asia-Pacific, who joins us from our office in Hong Kong. Um, but as we survey the forest, as I said, we want to make sure we take a close look at some of the most important trees. And for that, I'm pleased to have with us Alexandra Hillier, head of global healthcare in our equities department in London. Julie Nidzwicki, director in our private equity and real assets team based in New York, and an expert on transportation and logistics. And then finally, Abby Rosenbaum, uh, based in Boston as well, director in our real estate research team, and again, somebody who follows closely patterns in particular in in the retail sector. Um, There is, as I said, robust demand in households, from households, companies with very strong balance sheets. There are plans to spend, plans to invest, and we have governments at the same time who have been providing very strong support to the recovery, 
but are beginning to think about how they're going to withdraw that support. We've seen news of tapers. We've seen news of some rising interest rates in some uh, parts of the world. Uh, in particular, we're not going to be getting a lot of the fiscal support, the money into people's pockets that we've had over the last couple of years. And so we'll be trying to track some of that um, transition as well. But I think first, the biggest question that all of us has is the outlook for the pandemic itself. And so uh, let me start with Alexandra and her views on what we can expect. Alexandra, talk us through what you think the patterns are in developed markets in particular, but also in emerging markets in terms of the rollout of vaccines and the risks that we may see further lockdowns? Well, I think in, in developed markets, I think we pretty much know the answer to that now. The, the risks of further lockdowns, any increased restrictions um, are pretty low. We've now got um, a relatively high percentage of, of populations vaccinated, double vaccinated in the case of the vaccines where, where two injections are needed. And in some markets, we're rolling out booster programs, which we know from the Israeli data we have really supercharge immunity. So I think with some degree of certainty, we can say that in developed markets, we have a low risk of further significant lockdown. The picture in developing markets is obviously less clear. Um, we have enough capacity in 2022 to vaccinate the world, but, but there are some bottlenecks in terms of getting jabs into arms, both from a distribution point of view, but also from things like, you know, syringes, um, vials. Um, I personally think that that will not lead to significant further lockdowns. Um, I think we now have COVID antivirals, um, which are relatively affordable to ward off significant hospitalization and severe disease. Um, I think that's a really important part of the jigsaw. And I also think, and this is a, a slightly less happy thing to say, is that in some markets now where the virus has been ripping for some time, we are reaching some form levels of, of herd immunity. Um, importantly, I think um, the Delta variant is outcompeting all other possible variants. And Clearly, this is a, a thing to say, which obviously I'll, I'll be pleased if I'm not wrong, but I could be wrong, is that it doesn't look like we're seeing any, any other variant, which is significantly more virulent, um, coming along to take over from Delta. And I think that's quite important. And so that is important because I think it helps frame some of the tail risks that we may be looking at next year. But I think one of the questions you alluded to it earlier, one of the questions we all have, is the difference between developed markets and emerging markets where vaccination seems to be lagging. Um, what is the picture likely to look at, say, at the end of next year in developing countries and emerging markets? Do we think we can see a big catch-up in vaccination rates? Um, I think we'll see some catch-up. I don't see emerging economies uh, getting to the same level of vaccination rates. Uh, for example, in India recently, we've seen quite a lot of people not turning up to their second vaccinations. And there's a, a theory, I mean, clearly I don't know exactly why that is, but there's a theory that because cases are falling quite fast. And, and in my view, that's possibly because of some levels of herd immunity. Um, it, it's seen that people don't feel the need to turn up for their second vaccination. So, so I doubt we'll, we'll get to the same levels, but I think whichever way you cut it, I don't think that by the end of next year, then we'll be looking at a taller high level of, of lockdown in developing economies. Well, 
with all of the caveats and appropriate warning signs attached to that view, uh, let's take that as saying that we think we can avoid the most extreme outcomes in terms of new pandemic resurgence next year. And then, Ricardo, let me turn to you. If we do see a year um, without a strong threat from COVID, what do you think about the momentum going into next year for global demand uh, as, in particular, governments begin to think about withdrawing their support, both on the monetary side, we're hearing talk of tapering already, of course, and on the fiscal side, we're not going to get those very large packages next year uh, that we've seen over the past year and a half. Hi, Christopher. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, what we see from the sovereign perspective, global sovereignty is very much what you started with. The global economy seems to be on a very self-sustaining recovery. And uh, listening to what Alexandra said, um, and we tend to perceive the same things, uh, the virus seems to have lost its teeth in terms of economic impact. Lockdowns have become significantly less. Uh, even those that take place um, in developed or emerging markets, they have had fewer and fewer economic implications. Consumers have learned to spend when they can, and then uh, they take some time off. So the, the recovery, the global recovery seems to be uh, on a self-sustaining path. Employment that allows wages and income to grow, which in turn allows more consumption, which allows in turn more employment. Um, and that, as you pointed out, and we are also perceiving it, um, is causing very large effects on inflation. Uh, the Fed has already said that they have effectively met the inflation objective of the dual mandate that they have. And so we are going into 2022 with the self-sustaining growth of the global economy, which is very good for the global economy and the emerging market space. But at the same time, we're having uh, some retrenchment of monetary accommodation. Um, now, because the recovery is all self-sustaining, and the indication that we have gone from the key uh, policymakers, especially in the developed world, is that accommodation will not be withdrawn drastically, then that could give enough time for emerging markets to either fully vaccinate or fully come out of COVID, much like the developed markets have, um, as we have just heard. So when we look towards 2022, we see a really good environment um, both at the developed market level and the emerging market level. And something that tends to get forgotten is this time around, uh, global trade in nominal terms is growing quite briskly, quite sharply. Uh, from 2008 through 2020, global trade was lagging behind global growth. This time around, global trade, at least on nominal terms, is accelerating quite sharply. And that is also very positive for the world economy and specifically for emerging markets. But on emerging markets, since you follow them so closely, they've struggled this year, uh, I think in some part at least due to the fact that the rate expectations in the U.S. have picked up, um, the dollar has been strong, and those are always headwinds for emerging markets. Uh, will that not continue next year? So, yes, and we typically, when we look at emerging markets within the sovereign space, um, we think that is too broad a concept. We have countries that are very, very close to being basically developed, and they uh, have the ability to borrow from their local markets. They have very deep domestic markets. And so they act and move and, and, and their economies are very much like developed markets. And then we have very small 
uh, economies that have very few um, economic activity sectors that are very dependent on outside funding uh, that have typically been hit very sharply by every uh, crisis, in this case, a pandemic, but they also face uh, droughts, they face hurricanes, they, they face tons of difficulties, and they are all lumped into emerging markets. So yes, there is a section of the emerging markets that um, will struggle and will continue to struggle into next year. Uh, the financial, the international financial institutions are trying to assist them. Uh, there has been some policies that have been implemented to create reserves for the emerging markets, uh, in the SDR allocations that the IMF did in t- this year. Uh, but into next year, the difficulties that they will have could potentially get harder uh, to the extent that accommodation is removed more sharply. And I'm looking forward to this discussion because the inflationary pressures are clearly very present. We might share the, your views and the Institute views that uh, it is temporary. Uh, for us, temporary means in two years' time, three years' time, inflation could suppress on the downside. But in order to get there, we need to live through the next year to two years, and policymakers are likely to get scared and remove accommodation potentially faster. Well, I think that's where all eyes have been focused lately and are likely to be focused in the weeks ahead. So let me take that question and turn to Julie, who works very closely on following some of these supply chain issues we've been talking about. Uh, And the question really, I think, is, will they be resolved in three years' time or two years' time, or does the picture already start to look a little bit better next year? Uh, So, Julie, you know, these supply chains have been a really important um, feature in this age of globalization. Why have they broken down so spectacularly, and how soon can we expect them to heal? Sure. Hey, thanks for having me today. So the short answer is it's complicated and there isn't a quick fix. But let me let me elaborate on that for you. So please, the, the supply chain is so reliant on the underlying logistics. So think of this as the shipping, storing and receiving of goods. So people are fundamental to these functions. When you think back to the beginning of the pandemic, key components of the supply chain simply shut down. It was temporary but when things reopened, there were new COVID protocols in place that just led to a less efficient workforce. And in some geographic regions, we continue to see the periodic COVID-related shutdowns. So with these ongoing disruptions, we either need more people or more automation. So looking specifically at the US, we've seen a nice increase in warehouse workers since the pandemic has started, but we're essentially flattened down with the surface transportation providers. Uh, According to the ATA, we need another 80,000 truck drivers to meet current demand. So that's a U.S. domestic number. Uh, And truck drivers are essential to the supply chain. Uh, Here in the U.S., over 70% of our goods are ultimately delivered by truck. And we've been facing this shortage for a while now. The hours of service requirements, drug testing policies, and an aging cohort were all issues that we faced prior to 2020. And, you know, of course, logistical issues aren't a new thing. There are countless examples of weather disruptions or worker issues that have caused ripple effects through the supply chain. You know, I'll throw a fairly recent example at you. Uh, maybe you recall the 2014-2015 West Coast port slowdown. So this was triggered by challenging contract negotiation for longshoremen. Uh, during the final four months of negotiations, productivity at these ports slowed about 50%. And at one point, we saw almost 25 ships idling off the West Coast. You know, as a side note, this does compare to the 100 idling ships that we saw back in October. 
So just like today, the 2015 uh, West Coast slowdown had a huge impact on the supply chain. Recovery from this four-month slowdown took about a year once it was resolved. In 2021, it's clearly a different root cause, but we're seeing similar inefficiencies. You know, I expect that we're in for a difficult 12 to 18 months here at a minimum, and then starting to normalize after that. So that's a very helpful picture. And I think you did a great job making something complicated, at least digestible for the rest of us who look at it from the outside. But how much of this is uh, a U.S. problem and how much do we see it elsewhere? And particularly, I mean, the global data on inflation is particularly worrying in the U.S. right now, less present in other parts of the world. Can you, can you help us compare what we're seeing here? Is, is, is it only Americans who are going to miss some Christmas presents this year or will other countries suffer as well? You know, we're seeing issues globally. You know, clearly I focus primarily on the United States. But if you hear some of the stories coming out of uh, the, the European markets, they're facing the same issues with truck drivers. If you look at some of these uh, Asian markets that have a zero tolerance policy and they're having more shutdowns, they're facing the same issues as well. So, you know, it's, it's clearly a, a global issue that we have here. So, James, you live in Hong Kong, one of the most important links in the world's supply chains. What are, what are you seeing from your perspective? How well has trade returned to normal and what further disruptions do you think we're going to see in the months ahead? I think uh, I definitely um, share Julie's view. Um, it is a global issue and is quite evident in Asia as well. Well, if you want to see signs that supply constraints are easing, um, then you know the signs could, should come from Asia's upstream goods producing economies, right? So, firstly, uh, in China, well, although you know the trade activities there has been encouraging. Uh, with very strong shipments to developed markets, including U.S. and Europe, your presence. Uh, but bottleneck constraints remain quite high. And some of these increase in nominal exports um, surely owes to steep price increases, right? Um, but I guess over the next few quarters, um, we would expect um, volume shipments um, are also on the rise um, as COVID-related backups um, at some of the Chinese ports uh, should start to fade. Um, in Japan, I mean, as we all know, um, you know auto-related firms are pointing to production cutbacks uh, from persistent semiconductor shortages and noted difficulties in getting parts from Southeast Asia. So um, the, the problem is not going away anytime soon. And so as we take a step back and look beyond uh, port capacity and some of those issues, there are a lot of other factors that investors are focusing on in your part of the world, in particular, some of the headwinds to Chinese economic growth, whether it is more regulatory enforcement, disruptions in the property sector or electricity shortages. How serious are these headwinds um, for the Chinese economy? And what is your thinking about how they'll play out over the next year? Yeah, I mean, on, on the China slowdown, um, the property downturn has, has certainly weakened uh, fixed asset investments. Um, and as earlier pointed out, uh, the zero COVID policy uh, certainly inhibits consumption recovery. Um, but if you know, GDP growth slows down sharply by the end of this year, and perhaps you know, early next year, um, we would expect the government to some sort of, um, you know, launch some sort of easing uh, in terms of fiscal and monetary policies to, to really support growth, and, and more importantly, to prevent a property-led hard lending. 
um, just to give you an example, um, you know, the recent um, PBOC announcement on a new green lending tool, uh, which aimed to boost, you know, bank lending to green projects, um, is certainly a first step towards targeted easing uh, to offset the downward pressure on growth, at least in the short term, uh, which could also help achieve the longer term goal of, you know, decarbonization. So hopefully combined with anticipated targeted easing measures in other areas, uh, we hope to see some sort of engineered modest recovery in, in Chinese growth um, next year. And in a broader sense, um, we're expecting an uneven global growth next year. And so just to be clear, you're of the view that the Chinese government has all of the tools that it needs to contain the fallout from the property sector. Yes, indeed. Um, as we all know, um, you know, um, the um, property sector is 25% of, uh, of you know, China's GDP. So um, there are more and more signs that coming out from the senior administration uh, trying to calm markets. Um, you know, they finally broke the silence um, and put out you know, assuring words that um, they're not there to destroy the sector. It's very important. Everyone gets their home eventually, uh, but they will let some of these sort of you know, less well-managed property companies maybe let them go, but still um, preserve the um, systemic well-being. All right. That's a helpful perspective on an important part of the puzzle as we look to next year. Let's turn to another important part of the puzzle, also in the real estate sector. But uh, Abby, let me, let me ask you your thoughts about, um, particularly in the US, but also maybe if, if you have any thoughts on Europe, what we can expect. It looks like a complicated picture to me in the sense that we've got a very tight housing market in the US. Um, meanwhile, on the office side, the commercial side, the you know how many people will be going back to work and how many, what, what sort of usage patterns will remain after the pandemic are still big questions for a lot of us. Uh, and of course, there are big questions around retail as well. But give us a sense of what we can expect uh, from your perspective next year. Sure. Um, so the good news is, and I'll start with the good news, is that occupier demand is strengthening and fundamentals are improving across all the major property types, including office and retail, where we've seen the most challenges. And we expect that the trend will continue into next year. So let me take things down uh, to the sector level, and I'll start with those sectors that have had the strongest performance. Those are the apartment and industrial sectors. So for the apartment sector, even though it was not immune to effects from COVID, vacancy is declining across most of the markets in the U.S. Rent growth has returned and concessions have burned off. Even as an increase in multifamily permit signals near-term elevated new supply, Strong secular tailwinds, like you mentioned, Christopher, from housing demand and household formation should translate into a healthy performance in the coming quarters. Turning now to the industrial sector, um, as Ricardo uh, discussed, and as you mentioned, Christopher, we've, we've seen strong global trade conditions, manufacturing has improved, and the elevated e-commerce share of total retail sales have been a headwind for industrial performance, and that has been a boost, to be sure. The recovery has been so robust that the industrial availability rate is currently at its historic low. And we expect, as we've heard from others uh, today, that consumption and trade activity will hold up in the near term. So that should drive healthy industrial rent growth and a positive outlook overall in the coming year. But it's important to note that there are two sectors that have been more challenged than the other sectors, and those are office and retail. 
And like you were mentioning, Christopher, the full-scale work-from-home experiment continues to be a headwind for the office sector. Vacancy rates remain elevated, but the office sector is starting to see signs of stabilization, which is good. And the office recovery is, is expected to gain momentum as more workers head back to the office. Mm. Looking ahead, we do feel that physical office will remain an important part of the company culture, even as we transition to a hybrid workplace. We really are focusing on high quality space, and that will drive office demand recovery in both the suburbs and the CBDs. That's a very helpful overview um, in the U.S. What about uh, elsewhere, particularly in Europe? Are you seeing similar patterns or is it too soon to tell? No, so we are seeing similar patterns in in Europe um, for both particularly the apartment sector and the industrial sector. Um, For the office sector, uh, the recovery is a bit further underway than it is here in the U.S. simply because we've seen more, um, more workers return to the office. So let me let me go back to Ricardo and James for their perspectives. Ricardo, you know, this is a this is a complicated picture, right? We've seen very strong demand. We believe that will continue in place. Um, we see some areas of very tight supply, the bottlenecks in the ports, tight housing market in the US, uh, a labor market that in some areas it's impossible to find a short order cook, but there are still four or five unemployed um, uh, Americans as well as a very low participation rate. So there's both tightness and slack in the global economy. Um, Are are you worried about lingering inflation and what is it that you're watching most closely? So um, I'm afraid I may get a little bit technical here, but uh, we have done quite a bit of work on uh, secular stagnation, um, which basically is the uh, word that suggests that the world economy and especially interest rates, our interest in inflation to be totally frank is because it does have an effect on interest rates in the bond prices of the sovereigns that we trade. Uh, From that perspective, then, our goal is to try to understand where interest rates are likely to go. And for the past 45 years, interest rates have been on a downward trend. Um, And the question is, will they start to turn around because inflation will stay for longer? Um, And so for us, temporary means two, three years, it would be temporary because we like 10, 30-year bonds, and those shouldn't be affected by the near-term inflation, near-term as in two, three years. Now, near-term inflation, as we all say, is very, very strong. The trends that cause interest rates to have come down for so long, uh, we think are still in place, but which are primarily the demographics, uh, reduction in uh, births, a population growth that is declining, um, technology that is causing, among other things, the effect of uh, inequality. Uh, it's not clear which one it is, if it is the technology that causes inequality and inequality that causes the reduction in interest rates. But in either case, it seems that either technology or inequality or both are causing lower interest rates. And something that um, is typically not talked about because it lost its, its aura a long time ago from an economic perspective is quantity of money. And so when we look at quantity of money, and this in this case, we're focusing on M2, money aggregate M2, which is basically deposits plus reserve created by central banks. That money creation used to be about 10% before 2008, and global inflation was running around 4% when you accumulate developed and emerging market inflation. Since 2008, the rate of growth of money as M2 dropped from 10%, as I said, to 6%, roughly speaking, on average, from 2008 to 2020 and inflation was 2%. Nowadays, 
Uh, and because of the pandemic, central banks really create a lot of reserves and cause the quantity of money in the second quarter of 2020 to grow 26%. So 10%, 6%, 26%. So it was a big jump. Now, underlying all of this is central banks create reserves, which is quantitative easing, and banks, commercial banks, create deposits. The sum of the two is M2. Now, since 2008, central banks more than double the quantity of money in the world, but commercial banks retrench. Uh, in numbers, the quantity of money from 2008 through 2020, sorry, so 2021, has grown to uh, double, a 100% increase, M2. But that came through central banks creating 130% money and banks, commercial banks, retrenching 30%. So we're going to 2022 saying central banks realize that they're creating too much money. The difference between 2021 and 2009 has been that in 2009, banks undid almost everything that central banks did. Central banks created 25% extra money. Banks took out 20% of extra money. So the money creation went to about 5%. And so there was no inflation. In 2021, we have central banks creating 26% of money, but it wasn't a financial crisis. So banks didn't destroy a lot of money, did destroy some, about 10%. So net-net is now we have central banks retrenching their QE, reducing the pace of reserves, and they're starting to talk about taking reserves out of the system. We need banks, commercial banks, to uh, create money, M2. Otherwise, we will certainly go back to uh, pre-pandemic uh, trends, which were for lower and lower inflation and um, very low interest rates. And so that's the risk. When central banks finally start removing accommodation or now reducing accommodation very soon, or they have started in the case of the Fed, then uh, what will happen to global commercial banks? Will they be alive to create money or not? And if they're not, then we're going to go back to very low inflation in two to three years. So to take another half step even deeper into the technical aspects of all of this, are you watching the velocity of money? Because as the money supply has increased, the velocity has been relatively muted. We've seen a little bit of an uptick lately. Uh, but what is that something you're watching closely? Yes. So velocity of money um, was in a downward trend. And that is part of the explanation of why inflation has been low, even though money creation wasn't that low. But uh, during the pandemic, central banks created so much money, or at the start of the pandemic, created so much money that velocity really collapsed, in part because people couldn't spend it, people were home. Uh, as the economy opens uh, and has been opening, then velocity has been recovering, and that it has recovered fast enough to cause some inflationary pressures. Um, in numbers, velocity had dropped to about half of what it was at the start of the pandemic, and now is recovered about one third of it. If it were to recover the full thing, then we could have a lot higher inflation for a little bit longer. All right. So we'll be watching that. But James, let me turn to you. From your perspective, what is it that uh, that you're following? What is it that you're most worried about in terms of inflationary pressures? Indeed. Um, we pay close attention to what the um, corporate management is saying, uh, in particular in the latest round of uh, reporting season, right? So during the conversations, um, a lot of the management um, highlighted pressures from inflation and stretched supply, um, supply chains, right? Um, this clearly leads to input costs continuing to climb. Um, interestingly, managements um, have also commented on the very strong and uh, consumer balance sheets, I think as, as you alluded to at the beginning. 
And a few of them actually expressed difficulty uh, in meeting high consumer demand. So they are expecting such demand will continue. Well, having said that, um, many firms um, have been able to push through higher input costs and maintain margins. So they are protecting margins with very strong pricing power, at least for the moment. Um, well, that's good for corporate profits, um, but the concern that consumers are starting to build in inflation expectations is actually quite valid and worrisome. Um, my view is, um, given still healthy profit margins, a company should be eager to ramp up the production as soon as uh, supplies normalize, um, helping to ease price pressure eventually. However, it does take time um, for the market to find a new equilibrium. So I'm expecting firm prices to, to be extended to, towards at least first half of, of next year. And so for you who allocates money across asset classes, particularly among equities and fixed income uh, assets, uh, you're keeping a close eye on this earnings growth, which looks strong and looks sustainable through next year, but also trying to ensure that interest rates don't tick up too quickly uh, as they reflect the, the broader recovery. Correct. So um, we, we're, we're trying to find opportunities um, where... Um, where they can make best money or uh, a hedge on at least cyclical inflation. Um, and in general, in, or in broad sense, um, for now, equities should still be the, uh, the asset class to, to own for now. Okay, understood. Julie, let me turn to you. Uh, the, the supply chain disruptions that you've described and that you know so well have led to lots of broad pronouncements about the the end of globalization, uh, a curtailment of global trade. We've heard from Ricardo that, in fact, global trade continues to recover at a pretty good clip as the world reopens. But in the world that you're looking at, what kinds of investment opportunities do you think are most interesting or most exciting? Uh, and, and do you believe that that will reflect a, a, a sense that supply chains are being pulled closer back to home? Sure. Thanks for the question. You know, I don't think that globalization is dead. It's always evolving for a variety of reasons. I do expect some diversification away from China, uh, but with the port issues that we're facing, nearshoring to places like Mexico is becoming much more appealing. In the world of logistics, there's a lot of excitement around the connected Canada-US-Mexico supply chain. So the ability to utilize surface transportation, so this, this would be over the road or over the rail, minimizes some of the complexity and takes out some of the cost uncertainty when compared to overseas shipping. So again, one of the big lessons learned here um, is that it's really risky to have a single supply source. So I don't think we're going to uh, abandon overseas manufacturing, but things coming uh, nearer to home is is going to be in play here. So as far as specific opportunities, uh, we're looking at ways that we can invest in transportations uh, in the network that help alleviate bottlenecks. So an example of this would be developing new points of access to the less utilized West Coast ports. Um, we're also anticipating more opportunities to transport goods out of Mexico as this nearshoring trend accelerates. Um, finally, we continue to keep an eye on uh, level four autonomy for class eight trucks. So level four sorry, automation. What, what does that mean? Go ahead. So level four automation, uh, it allows for a truck to be driver free under limited conditions. Uh, we're seeing pilot programs of this technology being tested. 
So not only would this reduce the requirement for truck drivers, um, it could also allow the vehicles to be run 24 hours a day. So increasing utilization of equipment. And to be clear, these are autonomous trucks that would run on dedicated lanes between cities, not actually trying to navigate traffic in Manhattan. Right. So what we're seeing right now, and again, it's, it's somewhat early stages in, in testing, it's a lot of B2B. So it's a geofenced route. There's a specific set of characteristics, you know, whether it's weather, road conditions, et cetera, and the trucks will run, out, run on these loops. So that's like one of the examples of what we're seeing. Uh, it, you need to get to another level of technology before you'd be seeing these trucks driving around Manhattan, but it, it's, on, it's on its way, probably in a longer time horizon. And just to press you a little bit further, if globalization isn't dead and we're going to see a reorientation of supply chains, is the reliance on uh, just-in-time delivery debt? I mean, I think that's one of the other things, not just relying on a single supplier, but carrying limited inventory, which helps you boost profits. Are companies going to have to rethink that? I think over the next three years or so, we're going to have an increase in inventory, but then people will forget about all these issues and go back to what we were doing before and trying to maximize profits and keeping the minimum uh, supply uh, in their their warehouses. So I think over the short term, yes. Really long term, probably not. Yeah, uh, we all have we all tend to have shorter memories than we'd like to believe. But Abby, let me uh, turn to you in the retail sector first. In terms of the the inventory issues, do you think those will go away as as uh, as Julie describes? And then more broadly, where do you see um, opportunities in uh, in real estate? So yeah, absolutely. Listening to Julie, um, the supply chain constraints have been a huge factor um, for retail of late. Um, inventories are quite low for retailers. Um, and simply because the, the store is such an important component of a shopping strategy, um, the last mile distribution factor of the stores has become so important ever since the pandemic hit whether that be in-store shopping, curbside, click and collect, or delivery. And so I think these supply chain disruptions are going to be acute over the holiday shopping season. But as, as Julie mentioned, I think as we move into 2022, retailers are becoming much more savvy with how they're getting the goods to consumers. And so I think that, that those pressures should alleviate and then in terms of, I'll speak first to retail opportunities. Uh, again, um, as I mentioned, the store is going to be incredibly, incredibly important. Um, so those well-located centers um, that have great omni-channel capabilities that are resilient to e-commerce, which has been quite a headwind for certain retailers during this pandemic, um, those are going to be the best centers to perform going forward. And then in terms of the other sectors, um, we're looking, uh, we're focusing at, on STEM markets. Those are the, the places that we're seeing the, the greatest population growth. And so focusing on suburban apartments in those areas, and again, um, the high quality sort of creative tenants uh, for office space in, in those markets. And then um, for industrial, focusing on emerging submarkets for last mile delivery in those top 20 metros that we track. And the logic very quickly on STEM markets is that these are places of research, universities, it tends to attract people, not necessarily exactly. the largest cities in the world, but where there are exactly. opportunities uh, for, for property price appreciation. Exactly. And where we've been seeing migration to um, over the course of the pandemic. So that's where we see the greatest opportunity. 
And then quickly in, in Europe, is that a different picture or mostly the same kinds of trends you're looking at? So I think similar trends, um, as I mentioned in, in my previous discussion, we are seeing similar trends. Um, again, sort of that focus on uh, apartments and industrial properties in Europe. All right. Well, listen, uh, as our time winds up here, let me turn back to uh, James and Ricardo for some of their perspectives on what we've heard. I mean, it's a, it is a very differentiated picture. There are a lot of moving parts as we look to 2022. Um, but uh, uh, maybe, James, I'll start with you. You mentioned uh, equities looking particularly good as you put together a multi-asset portfolio going into next year. Are there any other areas where you are uh, particularly keeping a closer eye? Sure. Um, multi-asset investing is, is never easy. And um, it's getting more challenging every year. That's what we say to clients. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, given the strong run since the middle of uh, last year, uh, evaluations on most asset classes are at rich levels. Um, I hope, you know, we all agree with that. Um, so asset selection based on traditional valuation measures such as multiples, becomes quite challenging. So what we do is we do go back to the basics of investment cycle investing, whereby style selection gives us a clearer signal. Well, since we are past the peak of um, economic growth in most developed economies, um, stocks that um, exhibit quality and growth styles, um, in, my, in our opinion, are the best to own when uh, growth moderates. Um, which we think it would um, over the next year or so. Um, our portfolios are already tilted that this way, um, and I expect um, this style positioning to work well into 2022. In terms of region, um, no surprise, um, we still prefer the US, um, given its earnings visibility uh, and high exposure to technology companies. Uh, more tactically, though, um, we are seeing the Japanese market having a potential uh, for catching up um, with other developed markets um, as the reopening story, uh, complemented by strong earnings rebound, ongoing expansionary monetary policy, and potential sizable fiscal stimulus uh, should be quite supportive for domestic equities from a top-down perspective. And Ricardo, what about from your perspective? You look at both sovereigns in the developed world as well as the emerging world and currencies globally. Uh, what kind of opportunities and risks are you expecting to be focused on uh, next year? The biggest opportunities, it seemed to be on um, within the credit space on double B sovereigns, double B, the rating uh, category. Typically, a double B credit defaults some 8% of the time on a five-year horizon. So it's, it's a somewhat reasonable level of risk, um, but those should do quite well in the 2022 environment. There are obviously individual countries, single B countries, that are putting up a very good fight and we think they will do extremely well, but as an asset class, double B seem to be a better place to be. Interest rates in emerging markets have not followed the path of developed market rates, so if anything, there seem to be some opportunities in emerging market rates because emerging market inflation has gone up, but not nearly as much relative to its own history 
than developed market inflation. And developed market inflation is out of range. Emerging market inflation is not out of range. And so it doesn't make a lot of sense that interest rates in emerging markets have uh, sold off while developed market in interest rates have not. Now, the ranges Finally, are different. The ranges, the ranges are different. The ranges are higher in emerging right. market, but so are the interest rates, right? So um, for the similar range of inflation, emerging market interest rates have gone way out uh, for the most part. Uh, countries like Mexico, Russia, um, Brazil, yeah. for developed markets, they, for the same range, the interest rates have not moved. And so the, the, the difference has increased. So valuation-wise seem to be. And then finally, currencies uh, is the one asset class that we can safely say is very cheap, but it has been cheap for seven, eight, going to nine years, gone cheaper and have continued to go cheaper. So it's difficult to know the timing, but there's some currencies within uh, emerging markets that look quite attractive. Well, as our time runs down, I think that is where we should probably draw a line on this conversation. I think you have heard from our top-down experts as well as our bottom-up experts, both the global perspective, which I think is generally very positive, but also some of the key risks that we're following, in particular, the pricing pressures that we're seeing in certain parts of our supply chains, and the importantly, the amount of money and the velocity of money that we may see that will drive price pressures in the year ahead. But also within that framework, some opportunities uh, for where money can be invested and where we think the best returns might be available. With that, let me say thank you to our panel, James, Ricardo, Julie, Abby and Alexandra. And let me say thank you to all of you for joining us. There are materials that you can download on the website if you'd like to learn more. Please also take a look at the research that the Bearings Investment Institute produces. You can find it at bearings.com under the Institute tab. Thanks very much for joining us today. All the best. Thanks so much for listening to this conversation. And just a reminder that a written version of it will be posted to bearings.com in the next week or so. And finally, if you'd like to stay up to date on the thoughts of all of Bearings experts across public and private markets, be sure to follow Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.